All right, we are back. Curious to see where these numbers go next week. This is going to be a very um, telling week as to what we might expect in the next few months. I want to thank everybody who continues to contribute to this program by sending us stuff or at least posting it where we can see it. We have Beth to thank for the following meme. I, I hate it when I see some old person futzing around out in a store somewhere and then I realize that, hey, we went to high school together. Yeah, good old Will Durst had a series of jokes uh, along on that one at one point. We hope he continues to recover from his stroke last fall. We also hope that David Talbot continues to do the, his fine work, writing and speaking. We're going to try and reach out to him in the weeks to come and see if we can't bring him back on this program. Someone, someone else we need to, to bring back would be Peter Dale Scott. On Terry Gross this week, Fresh Air, they were interviewing this uh, Richard Road. I think he was an author about the deep state. And he starts out by mentioning that he went to interview Peter Dale Scott up in Berkeley about how his, he used that term in the 90s to refer to the military-industrial complex, etc., and powerful people in the Pentagon and elsewhere who influence policy. The term has been hijacked by the right, by the Breitbarts of the world, to make it look like a Trump versus the deep state. We need to have Peter come on and explain, you know, what his use of the term is and not Breitbart's because I think that, uh, I think it's a valuable concept. I think it's a real concept. Terry kept referring to how, oh, it's a conspiracy theory, this and that. Well, yeah, there's lots of conspiracy theory aspects to it of the crackpot nature. And then there's some conspiracy theory aspects to it that are like, well, what John Dean told us when we used the term conspiracy theory on this program so many years ago his rejoinder was, well, I only believe in the conspiracies that are real, and some of them are. And all this talk about uh, the virus and getting back to work, I note that the real estate industry is working very hard to keep us uh, in the mood to buy stuff or you know, get, getting us ready to buy stuff when we can leave our homes and go out looking at various properties here and there. We're not big fans of the housing industry here in California on this program. I know people have to live somewhere, but when you drive around someplace like Moreno Valley, California, or Harupa Valley, used to be a little desert town of 5,000 people, and you see where they put 100,000 souls down there out in the desert, dependent upon water from elsewhere, you go, and you just have to say, well, this, this needs a rethink. A lot of things need a rethink when this is over, and we're going to talk about that, I hope, before this half hour is up. But some things will never go away. The, the over-promotion of the real estate people, I think, will be with us forever. I had to laugh very hard at some homes that were in the East Bay Times being flogged in Los Banos. Now, I, I lived in Merced County for three years back when I was doing my medical residency. Had various jobs down there in that neck of the woods, Merced, Madera, Chowchilla, Los Banos. And I have to say that those west side of the valley towns, not the ones like on the east side that, you know, you go down 99, you go town after town, all some of the ones I just mentioned, including Fresno, Turlock, nearby Visalia, etc. Well, that's where people used to live. On the west side of the valley, which, you know, what you see when you drive down I-5, well, that's just uh, a little drier, a little dustier, a place that agriculture came late to because there was no water. Remember physician's assistant we had, Rick Dean, great guy, commenting that although he came from Iowa and did enjoy California, a place like Los Banos had less to offer than a small Iowa town. He was not a fan. But one thing you can say about living in Los Banos, 
is that the housing prices are not in the stratosphere. The ad I'm looking at notes that new homes are available from 200,000 to 500,000. Leave the big city that's overpopulated, says the ad, and move to the affordable and peaceful serenity of the country lifestyle of Los Banos. It adds there are plenty of hiking and biking trails around town, which has me scratching my head a little bit. I guess you can drive a few miles to the west of the foothills and hike around. The ad also says there's enjoyable lake areas minutes away. I think they're referring to the reservoir. But here's the part that really captivated me. And Yosemite National Park, a little over an hour away. Now, when I lived in Merced, which I did for many years, and went up to Yosemite, which I did on many occasions, I noted that it was a 99-mile trip. Los Banos is 25-odd miles in the wrong direction. So an ad that says Yosemite National Park is a little over an hour away sent me to Google Maps, which tells you that Los Banos to Yosemite National Park by the fastest route is one hour and 57 minutes. So I guess if you're writing copy for this ad, (laughs) you want to say that 57 minutes takes you just a little over an hour, well, then it's completely accurate. I do hasten to add, please do not take this as advice from this program to not move to Los Banos. Anyway, we do want to give credit where credit is due to uh, Governor Gavin Newsom of California. He's been acquitting himself rather well during this crisis, which is more than we can say for Washington. But we continue to not be too crazy about his Delta Tunnel plan, which he has advocated for. The Sacramento News and Review sounded off on this topic recently, article by Scott Thomas Anderson, I think we should quote from. Notes the piece, with the coronavirus pandemic upending life in California, state officials are extending their deadline to public input on the latest plan for the 50-mile tunnel through the Delta to move large amounts of its fresh water south. Yep, they still want to keep building down there in Harupa Valley. But while the department, not to mention almond groves near Los Banos, but while the Department of Water Resources has hosted eight meetings from Los Angeles to Reading for people to voice their concerns, it turns out DWR officials have already heard concerns about the new tunnel's design from the state's own independent team of engineers who call the current plan logically impractical. So far, the department isn't slowing down on its timeline to design the project, even as concerned groups and Delta residents try to balance watchdogging by the tunnel's impacts with surviving COVID-19. Notes the piece, the California water fix, formerly envisioned as twin tunnels and now proposed as a single tunnel, has been controversial under various names and incarnations for 14 years. Delta communities, environmental groups, indigenous tribes, and sporting alliances lined up in such numbers against the project championed by former Governor Jerry Brown that Gavin Newsom changed course in February 2019, almost immediately after taking office. Of course, I do have to chuckle at this allegation, but the piece says, at Newsom's direction, DWR and the Joint Powers Authority in charge of the project's design, the Delta Conveyance Design and Construction Authority, were told to abandon their model for the twin tunnels. Instead, the governor told them they should pursue a single tunnel. Oh, that's so much better. You know, that guy was threatening me with a double-barreled shotgun. I'm so relieved that he put it down and now only threatens me with a single-barrel shotgun. Anyway, this piece notes that the shaft locations are a significant distance from Interstate 5, accessible only by farm roads with hindrances such as narrow weight-restricted bridges and single lanes. 
This makes supporting large operations, which require a constant transfer of materials and people in and out, impractical and expensive, as well as difficult to price. In addition, addressing safety, including hospital access and tunnel safety duplication, creates a costly layer or redundancy without definitive cost. The construction impacts of water fix have also troubled other independent experts, particularly the years of heavy equipment and big rig traffic degrading the Delta's levees. Anyway, the fight goes on for this, as it must. And something else we need to keep our eye on is the use of the COVID-19 pandemic to um, advance some political agendas. Emily Baselton, writing in the New York Times, notes that abortion foes are using the coronavirus pandemic as, as an excuse to prevent women from ending their pregnancies. Women have an established constitutional right to abortion, but officials in Ohio, Texas, Alabama, and Mississippi have attempted to use restrictions on, quote, non-essential, unquote, medical procedures to ban abortions. In Texas, authorities threaten providers with fines of $1,000 or 180 days in jail for performing any kind of abortion, including those using orally administered legal medications. Yep, this would be a really good time to start putting doctors in the slammer, wouldn't you say? That led to a wrenching scene of more than 100 desperate women weeping outside one shuttered clinic. Court battles over bans are underway. Nearly all abortions are performed in private clinics, not hospitals, and do not interfere with the life-saving treatment of people with COVID-19. Chemical abortions can be safely conducted with little patient-doctor interaction. To tell women with unwanted pregnancies they cannot exercise their legal right for three or more months is a cruel sham, a way for states to force them to give birth. During this crisis, governments should seek to ease people's burdens, not single out women for punishment for seeking abortions. And while our attention is uh, somewhat diverted elsewhere, the continued assault upon uh, the rule of law is taking place. Bloomberg notes that Donald Trump defended last Friday his effort to fire the U.S. intelligence community's inspector general, saying that in his opinion, Michael Atkinson did a terrible job when he raised alarm over a whistleblower's complaint that led to the president's impeachment. Not a big Trump fan, I can tell you. Trump told reporters Saturday, referring to Atkinson. Trump faulted him for taking what he called a false report to Congress. Atkinson alerted lawmakers about the complaint regarding Trump's demand that Ukraine investigate former Vice President Joe Biden and his son, Hunter. He later testified in the House impeachment inquiry. The dismissal marks Trump's latest act of reprisals against government officials who played a role in his impeachment. It comes amid the coronavirus pandemic. Noted Senator Mark Warner, vice chairman of the Intelligence Committee, in the midst of a national emergency, it is unconscionable the president is once again attempting to undermine the integrity of the intelligence community by firing yet another intelligence official simply for doing his job. A stink needs to be raised about this, and we hope we can contribute to that stink as time goes on. Writing about the danger of authoritarian creep, Jeff Jacoby in the Boston Globe notes that once a state of emergency is declared, the president, governors, and local officials have enormous unchecked power to prohibit travel, declare certain jobs non-essential, and make leaving your home a crime. The Justice Department has even asked Congress to suspend habeas corpus, the constitutional guarantee that anyone who's arrested can challenge the charges in court so that the authorities can detain people indefinitely without trial. That is chilling. 
When the end of the crisis comes, perhaps the president and governors were willing to surrender their godlike power to rule by decree. But power can be very addicting, and Americans will need to be on the alert for authoritarian creep. And speaking of authoritarian creep, and I'm sorry I can't resist, it seems clear that the godlike power that uh, various tech giant CEOs have over our lives is probably also not going to go away anytime soon. Looking at an ad I cut out uh, many weeks ago and talked about on the program. Uh, well, the headline is, Biden describes Facebook's Zuckerberg as, quote, a real problem, unquote. Democratic presidential candidate slams social media CEO over political ad policies. The week before that article came out, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi called Facebook a shameful company and said it's become accomplices for misleading the American people with money from God knows where. Now, a lot of people I know have, have argued back and forth in the, in the past couple years about the degree of the Russian interference in the 2016 election. Yours truly has taken the position that there can be no doubt that such interference took place. The hard part is trying to determine how effective that was in swinging the election away from Hillary Clinton. If the Russians did not succeed in doing this, I think it's fair to say it wasn't, it wasn't for want of trying. But it also seems increasingly likely as we go along that the real reason Donald Trump is sitting in the Oval Office right now has to do with how brilliantly his campaign used social media. As, uh, as we all do with a lot of time sitting at home, uh, I was using my home entertainment facilities to check out an old episode of 60 Minutes wherein they took a look at Brad Parscale, who was hired to be Trump's media guy. And um, that's something I also would recommend uh, that any of you who are so inclined may wish to check out. Parscale clearly outlines how, in his opinion, the key reason Trump was elected was the use, the effective use, of Facebook. Was this, in fact, more important than the Russian efforts? Very possibly. I would say probably. Was there any possible collusion between the Trump campaign and the Russian efforts to likewise use Facebook to their advantage? Well, when they asked Parscale that question on 60 Minutes, Leslie Stahl puts it to him. He scoffed and denied it and just said, no, nah, I'm, I'm an American. I would never be part of something like that. Looked to me like he was lying. But I, you should make your own call on that one, dear listener. The Sunday business section of the... Uh, East Bay Times had a profile of a woman named Wendy Liu. She's written a book titled Abolish Silicon Valley, How to Liberate Technology from Capitalism. I'm not sure I like her use of the word ism in this because that always tends to make things very fuzzy. But her point is, well, in asked the question, why do you want to abolish Silicon Valley? She said the problem is the fact that tech is ultimately interrelated to capital. And right now, capital is very concentrated and not representative of the people. I asked the question, can we find a way of developing tech that is actually serving the public social need without it being in the same system that has produced so much of the waste and inequality that we see? Talking about venture capital, she said, if you're a venture capital firm, you have to back disruptive industries. The economics of the industry is that most companies will fail and you have to invest in companies that are thinking big. You want to find the whales. You don't want to miss the next Amazon because people will think you're an idiot. The companies that are profitable are not profitable because of some preordained reason. Most are taking advantage of monopolies of some sort. Why are Google and Facebook so big? 
They have control over the advertising, and they use it for wealth extraction. Google and Facebook created a new system to deliver advertising. Tech companies are trying to make money as best they can and have to have some sort of monopoly and extract rent from that. Now, you, if you suggest to, to your friends, who are probably liberals, who take part in Silicon Valley, that there was probably no more powerful force assisting the Trump presidency, and all that that means right now in this COVID-19 crisis, probably no more powerful a force to put Trump in the White House than social media, specifically Facebook. I think you'll be greeted with a blank expression. As Brad Parscale says in the 60-minute interview, yeah, there's a lot of liberals out there in Silicon Valley that invented this technology, and I guess they were just real surprised that it took a you know, arch-conservative like me to come along and learn how to use it properly. I'm paraphrasing, but that was the thrust of it. Of course, I should add one caveat, is that Trump was ready to try it. He rolled the dice on this. Hillary Clinton's people were offered in-house Facebook consultants who were Democrats politically to help with the campaign, and they turned it down. This story is one that you need to, to, to run down, dear listener, if you're unfamiliar with it. There was an article in The Atlantic on Brad Parscale. There's the 60 Minutes. There's stuff out there. Read up on this guy. He's probably the most important guy in the country you've never heard of. But, uh, you know, the San Jose Mercury News, East Bay Times are completely held in thrall to uh, two major industries, uh, tech and real estate. We've already just taken our whack at real estate. But I did note that they decided to present six internet visionaries pondering our future during this COVID-19 crisis. Vint Cerf, described as one of the founders of the internet as we know it today, he was praising the ability of artificial intelligence developed at Stanford to identify and project the pandemic. We'll see how those projections pan out. But I did like what Martin E. Hellman had to say. He's described as having co-invented public key cryptography. He said, for years, scientists have warned that it was just a matter of time before another pandemic comparable to the 1918 flu, or worse, devastated an unprepared world. And when it happened, commerce ground to a halt, the stock market crashed, and deficit hawks suddenly became big spenders. This wake-up call got the world to look at other warnings that were being ignored. Suddenly, there was energy for really dealing with climate change and the risk of nuclear war. Genetic engineering, as well as artificial intelligence and cyber weapons, got the attention they deserved before they became existential threats. Well, we hope so. Climate change is not going to go away. It's, it's actually in this terrible recession that we're experiencing. I think that, uh, you know, we're probably seeing a break in CO2 emissions. But yeah, we have to agree with uh, Mr. Hellman dealing with the threat of nuclear war, which is still very much an everyday issue in the world. And, and of course, climate change. Well, let's hope we focus on that sooner rather than later. All right, when's the last time we did any science in this program? It's been a while. I mean, like, you know, not medical, biological, virological science. We're hoping to report in this program that Comet Atlas, which, which many people had high hopes would be the brightest comet in the skies in, in the last couple of decades, was going to put on a real show, but it looks like the comet is breaking up into pieces and may not deliver. And in other shows in the sky, if you get up in the early dawn hours uh, over the next couple of days, you should see the moon aligned with Saturn, 
Jupiter, and Mars. I think those uh, planets are going to remain in close proximity over the next couple of months. I'm, I'm sure of it, at least in terms of Jupiter and Saturn. Saturn orbits the Sun every 26 years, so its stately movement through all of the signs of the zodiac, uh, or at least rather the plane of the ecliptic, well, it takes that amount of time. Jupiter is going twice as fast. It only takes a dozen years to whip around. And something like every 19 years or so, Jupiter and Saturn then get close to one another up in the sky. What you'd really hope is for that to happen when both of the planets are in a straight line with the Earth, meaning that they're both at their highest point around midnight and at their brightest. That would be really cool. Unfortunately, that grand conjunction is going to take place this year, but it will not happen when we're lined up with the two gas giants. As luck would have it, those two planets are going to be lined up when we are at right angles to it. So, so they'll be really close in the sky around sunset. It'll still be cool, but they won't be at their brightest. Oh, well. And in other news, astronomic, uh, well, at least where astronomy meets feminism. How's that for a linkage? There's a review in New Scientist magazine of a, a new book about Cecilia Payne Gopachkin, What Stars Are Made Of. The review notes that one of the lesser-known consequences of the current wave of feminism is the number of women that have been added to the scientific and technological canon. Cecilia Payne Gopachkin is the latest. What Stars Are Made Of, a biography by Donovan Moore, highlights the British astronomer and astrophysicist's contribution in overturning a basic assumption about the makeup of the universe. In the 1920s, Payne Gopachkin analyzed the spectral pattern of stars, a plot of the amount of light given off at different wavelengths. Because this pattern varies depending upon which elements a star contains, this allowed her to show that these objects are composed primarily of hydrogen, making this the most abundant substance in the universe. She found there was about a million times more hydrogen in stars than we thought. However, the prevailing belief was that the elemental makeup of stars was like the Earth, and Payne Gopachkin's discovery was rejected. Henry Norris Russell, director of Princeton University's observatory, dismissed her findings as clearly impossible. Yet, four years later, his research confirmed her work. And he got credit for the discovery. Anyway, Cecilia Payne Gopachkin did do okay. She became the first person to earn a PhD in astronomy from Harvard University, and later became the first woman to be appointed to a full professorship at Harvard. Anyway, the book is described as a rich and illuminating biography of a scientist whose contributions have been underappreciated for too long. They did note that some recognition came in 1976 when Payne Kapashkin received an American Astronomical Society Lifetime Award, named, ironically, the Henry Norris Russell Lectureship. Well, that is ironic. And in an item from what would be the Social Science Department, uh, one can hope that the fact that People having to self-isolate, being stuck in, in their houses and not as free to travel as they would like, will give all of us, I think, a taste of what a lot of senior citizens uh, experience as a matter of course. Um, a lot of folks are isolated in, in, our, in our society that, uh, that prizes youth and sees nuclear families separated from the older generations. A lot of folks are just more isolated than, than, than they should be. And one hopes that uh, as everybody's stuck home, we'll, we'll sort of get a sense of this and, and make a point when this is all over to, to reach out more aggressively to, uh, to folks that could use a little social contact. And given this is a giant health care crisis, we need to reevaluate our health care 
in the USA. Looking at a piece I cut out from January 2nd, <laughs> the day before President Cockwomble was advised about the, uh, the virus, it was about health care and the issues of cost. They noted that an angioplasty in the U.S. is $32,000, whereas elsewhere it might be 6400 bucks. The piece in the New York Times by Margaret Sanger Katz notes that patients and insurance companies in the U.S. pay higher prices for medications, imaging tests, basic health visits, and common operations. Those high prices make healthcare in the U.S. extremely expensive, and they also finance a robust and politically powerful healthcare industry, which means lowering prices will always be hard. Yeah, it seems clear that uh, the more universal healthcare that is available in other advanced nations is helping them during this crisis. We need to keep that in mind and see what we can do to um, to mitigate the bad effects of healthcare delivery through insurance companies. They they don't they don't do such a great job. I think, you know, pretty hard to argue with that. I mean, I know as a practitioner, you you mark out some bill for some crazy amount the insurance company set, they take a look at it, they decide they're going to pay you some mysterious fraction of it, which they then pay out. Your copay depends on what they didn't cover. It's 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 all crazy. We got to change it. And one final plea for improvement on today's program comes from David Attenborough. There's a documentary about him that should be marketed on Netflix soon, I think. It's titled David Attenborough, A Life on Our Planet. It's been delayed due to the coronavirus pandemic, but they think it may hit uh, um, it may hit cinemas and Netflix later this year. New scientist notes that Burr was particularly outspoken when he talked to them in a press event. The film is part memoir, part lecture. It's a powerful and deeply personal plea to turn things around for the sake of every living thing on the planet. Attenborough, at least, was not invoking the Gaia hypothesis to explain coronavirus. He said, I think we will deal with it perfectly well. I don't think we can draw a big moral lesson about how we're treating nature so badly that she's kicking us back. I think it's just part of life. Anyway, David Attenborough's documentaries, Blue Planet, Blue Planet 2, and I think everything he's done is just outstanding, and I certainly look forward to seeing this, this effort about him. All right, one thing I don't think would have happened if it hadn't been a coronavirus crisis was me picking up a copy of John le Carre's The Pigeon Tunnel, Stories from My Life. It was in the bargain bin at my local Lucky's. They were cleaning out their books. I'd seen uh, David Cornwell interviewed on uh, 60 Minutes and was impressed by how erudite he was, although I'd never read any of his books until I picked up this selection of stories from his life. And in the minute we have left, I'm just going to snatch one anecdote from it. Cornwell slash Le Carre turned down honors from the British government twice. But after doing so, a third letter arrived, nevertheless inviting him to a meeting at 10 Downing Street with the Prime Minister. Said Le Carre, there were six tables set in the dining room of 10 Downing that day, but I only remember ours, which had Mrs. Thatcher at its head and Dutch Prime Minister Rude Lubbers on her right. The year must have been 1982. I do not remember the, any of the opening exchanges between the six of us that were there, but perhaps they had happened over cocktails before we sat down. I do remember Mrs. Thatcher turning to the Dutch Prime Minister and acquainting him with my distinction. Now, Mr. Lubbers, she announced in a tone to prepare him for a nice surprise, this is Mr. Cornwell, but you will know him better as the writer John Le Carré. Leaning forward, Lubbers took a close look at me. He had a youthful face, almost a playful one. He smiled. I smiled. Really friendly smiles. No, he said. 
and he sat back in his chair still smiling. But Mrs. Thatcher, as it is well known, does not lightly take no for an answer. Oh, come, Mr. Lubbers, you've heard of John Le Carré. He wrote The Spy Who Came In From The Cold and other wonderful books. Lubbers, nothing if not a politician, reconsidered his position. Again, he leaned forward and took another longer look at me, as amiable as the first, but more considered, more statesmanlike. No, he repeated, and evidently satisfied that he had made the correct finding again, sat back. Anyway, we're out of time where I'd read more. He's a hell of a turn of phrase, that man. The program was produced by Edward McMillan. You are listening to Radio Parallax. Practice good hygiene, practice your social distancing, and we're pretty much going to get through this. And do not let President Cockwomble shift the blame. I'm Douglas Everett. We'll see you next week when we're going to try and go over how the numbers are shaken out. Until then.